0: There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better
1: way.
2: You don't have to be, you Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't, today is Thursday, November the 4th, Friday, November the 4th, 2022. This is episode 3198 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for an expert council Q&A show of the week. I want to remind you guys again, uh, that next week, all week, I'm dealing with the workshop. The workshop actually starts on Wednesday. But, for me, preparation for the workshop started a long time ago, but the final you know push to the end stuff starts for me Friday afternoon this this today is when the start it 's nonstop, stop balls to the wall all the way through so rewinds all next week, and one more rewind Monday of the following week will be a rewind. I think you 'll enjoy the rewinds. I have some really cool stuff selected for you guys this time around for rewinds. Most of you probably haven't ever heard most of these shows, and if you did, it'll be like hearing them for the first time because I guarantee it's been long enough for that to be the case. Uh, What do we got for you today, though? Good lineup of the experts. Dr. Ron Paul will talk about how government has basically done nothing but lie for a long time. Uh, In the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, Stan McAdams over there, DHA's portals for government to take down social media. This This is bad shit, guys. And then Chris Rossini... We'll talk about why politicians will blame inflation on anything except the Fed, who actually has the biggest impact on inflation. You ever wonder why they won't blame the Fed? You ever wonder that? Chris Rossini will talk about that. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about thoughts about eating liver if you're a diabetic because there's this idea that diabetics shouldn't eat liver. I'm not really sure where that came from, but uh, it's bad advice, and Ken will tell you why. Sean Mills will talk about using solar for hot water production and powering a router during a planned rolling blackout as well. Nicole Sauce will talk about freezer alarms. Amy Dingman will talk about how you may not always be the best teacher for your kid when you're homeschooling for everything that they need to learn or want to learn. Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about plywood and fears of delamination. Chef Keith Snow will have a, a little testimonial for you. We haven't heard from Keith in a long time his experience with what Ken Berry calls the proper human diet and what led up to it and and how much better his life is today. And I'm going to talk to you guys about something that was kind of spurred on by just took a look at the uh, Survival Podcast Telegram chat and a comment somebody made, how thinking like you're poor makes you stay poor no matter how much money you make. Poverty consciousness. We're going to talk about that. I haven't talked about that in a while. I figured it would be a, a good wrap-up for today before I leave you guys uh, for a week. With that, let's go ahead and just dive straight on into it. Ron Paul Liberty highlights of the week. You'll hear in order Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams, Chris Racine.
3: There's more people who are starting to say, I don't trust the government. And that's a good sign that you're moving in the right direction because the very nature of government is to maintain power by telling lies and they have no guilt about it and uh, they they go about doing what they want but they maintain their power by just more lies innuendos and feeding them this nonsense that has been fed to them in universities that's what the universities teach so we are at a crossroads where you know this will not continue as is it will have to stop the big thing is is trying our very best to make sure the people opt for more liberty and not opting out for another interventionist planned society they haven't canceled out the whole principle of work and production and savings and living within one's means that will have to come back because eventually the whole thing collapses when, it, when there's a total loss of the currency, and that is what's happening already. So now they're just, you know, they're just playing, playing this by ear and trying to keep it together. But I'll tell you what: we can put it together and we can change things if the majority of the people just say we want to live in a free society, we want to assume the responsibility for our own welfare. We want to assume the responsibility as parents to take care of our children. And we want to make sure that if the government's involved, it's very, very limited. And believe me, things would improve dramatically and could be rather quickly.
4: Yeah, Dr. Paul, and it was an amazing investigative report and all credit goes to Ken Clippenstein uh, and Lee Fang, two great investigative reporters for The Intercept, and it was picked up literally everywhere when it came out. Because as you say, we've talked a lot about how the government tries to influence Twitter and Facebook and the other social media. But these two investigative reporters dug into many things, including a lawsuit filed by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, and part of the discovery, I believe, gave the real extent uh, to which we see that uh, the US government in the particular form of the Department of Homeland Security uh, injected itself into social media to control the content. And, you know, this co- takes us back, Dr. Paul, to the beginning of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And I remember it very well, your statements at the time when you voted against it and you brought down a world of criticism on you. You said, look, this is going to be turned inward toward us someday. Uh, this is not about foreign uh, attacks on us, but it's about controlling Americans This is exactly what it is. And here's one key takeaway from the investigative report, Dr. Paul, which is that Facebook and Twitter, according to Lee Fang, and he posted the documents, Facebook and Twitter created special portals for the government to rapidly request takedowns of content. The portals, along with NGO partners, used to censor a wide range of content, including obvious parody accounts, And content disagreeing with government pandemic policy. That means if you disagreed with the government, the government had a special sign in to Facebook where they could directly (laughs) go to Facebook and say, I want you to take this one down, take this one down and take this one down. And they complied with this, which is absolutely incredible. It's probably the scandal of the century, I think.
0: Yeah, greed uh, is a real thing and it's an individual issue. Uh, We all have to contend with it. We all have to curb it. Um, But amazingly, uh, many people, too many people, they believe that politicians are there as protectors of the people against other greedy people. And this is one of the biggest political cons out there. Uh, Today, politicians are some of the greediest people on earth. You know, there's very, very few statesmen that are in our government. You know, how many? We hear the stories all the time enter government with virtually nothing and they leave filthy rich you know this is what public service is you go in with nothing and you come out with tens of millions of dollars uh... so we're supposed to believe that these are the people to protect us from greedy corporations uh... now they work with each other is is how it works you know and there's a reason why that they keep the focus off the fed and dr paul uh... pointed out uh... The reason why they don't want to uh, blame the Fed and just blame anybody else is, one, is politics. They want to take it off of Biden, take it off their party. But they also want the Fed there, both left and right, because the Fed prints the money and they create the welfare state, the warfare state. If you get rid of the Fed, you get rid of that, and you get rid of politicians going into government and coming out rich. So they, uh, if they blame the Fed, go after the Fed, audit it, and end it, That's going to end their own gravy train. So the chances of the two political parties ending the Fed are very, very slim. That's the bad news. The good news is what Dr. Paul has said uh, all this time, is the Fed is going to end itself. You know, it will destroy itself because it's going to destroy the currency, uh, you know, brought on by left and right spending. And people will lose confidence around the world and here and will have no other choice but to return to sound money.
2: So of the three, I'm, I'm going to just give a little bit of extra on dance this week, and we'll move on to the next segment. Um, I, I, I think this is bigger than people realize because we've we've known so much bullshit's been going on with social media, with data collection, all of it. And the prison program, stuff that goes back all the way back to the to Bush era uh, for so long. That as more and more comes out, it's like, yeah, we already knew that. No, we didn't already know this. We knew the government was directly involved in censorship, uh, which, by by the way, you know that whole little phrase in the Constitution about impeachment—you know, high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah, that would be a high crime. The government directly involved in the censorship of speech. The whole defense of you know Facebook taking stuff down or or, or Twitter taking stuff down or whatever has been since they're private corporations they can do whatever they want and into to a level I actually agree. I don't think it's right, but it is true that is, private companies, publicly held private companies, by the way, they can do what they want. They have to be accountable to their shareholders, etc., but they don't have to be accountable to the United States Constitution and its restrictions upon government. It gets into a gray area there because they've all taken so much damn public money, and I'm not talking about investor money. I'm talking about government money that is really the people's money that was stolen from them, but in the end... Under U.S. law, they are private corporations. They're privately run and managed. And therefore, if they want to censor speech, they can censor speech. If I want to censor speech on my website, and I do, by the way, then I have every right to. Now, what I censor is clearly spelled out, and it almost never happens. right? And if you want to know what it is, you can go look at my disclaimers and policies, and it's very clear. And I think most people are okay with a site setting limits on what can and can't be done as long as it's clear and it's impartially enforced. Right? Some people are like, you should let anybody say anything. Well, they can go say something somewhere else. They don't need to come to my blog to do it. right? If you want, if you want complete, total free speech, I'll, I'll be honest, Gab will give it to you. Go to Gab. But when we get into this world, we get into this world where you have government officials have an official login portal to, to log in at any time and say, I don't like this, make this go away. This is a this is a constitutional level crime. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen because of it. Absolutely effing nothing. Nothing will ever be held to a consequence from here. You'll get your giant red wave next week. Republicans will take over. By January when they get sworn in and take their seats There won't be a damn bit, there won't be a peep about this. There won't be a peep about this because it's the one ring, you know. It's kind of like the whole thing with the Federal Reserve, too. There's many one rings in the world of government. Anything that grants true power is the one ring. Get rid of it. Why shouldn't I keep it? So this massive apparatus that the, the, the Democrats have been working so hard to build in recent years, is about to fall, at least in some level, into the hands of Republicans. Oh, the wailing and gnashing of teeth will go commence then. This is the danger in government. This is the danger in government. that All of these things, this whole idea, this is when the republic was truly lost. The day that we got so into partisanship that something that was totally not okay for one side to do was okay to do when your side was in charge and in some levels we've been there since the time of like Jefferson and Adams but not like this this is a relatively new phenomenon this is a you know 70, 80 years being a generation this is this generation's problem not the generations of demographers but how long a single human lives like the time of, of, of older living Americans in that time this occurred and it is, it is truly sad and now we have the t- 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 I'll let it go it's just th- th- something that everybody should be angry about, and, and nobody really is. Next up, let's do something a little more productive. What about diet for diabetics, and specifically organ meats like liver?
5: Hey, all you beautiful preppers and survivalists. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question today from Jesse. Jesse says, is cow liver a diabetic-friendly meal? I've been on a kick of eating liver and i was going to offer some to my mother-in-law but my wife said that is not good for diabetics to eat liver we bought a half cow and got the liver and other organ meats which absolutely first of all let me say bravo all you guys if you order a quarter beef a half beef a whole beef please get the organ meats as well please get that don't waste that those are some of the most nutrient dense multi-vitamin, multi-mineral superfoods on the planets. Jesse's eating a small amount of liver a couple of times a week, which I think is excellent. So is liver a good food for diabetics? The answer is 100% yes, without equivocation, okay? Uh, what your mother-in-law, what your, what your wife said about your mother-in-law is what I call the echo of the lie. So people will hear something from some news outlet or doctor or dietitian and it just becomes a rule of life for them. They, they, it's a, a nice, memorable nugget. And so they store that away. Okay. Liver's bad for diabetics. Got it. I'll remember that forever. And anytime someone is about to give liver to a diabetic, I will pop off my two cents worth. Uh, now, don't be disrespectful to your wife, Jesse. OK, always with love and kindness. Are you going to try to correct errors in your spouse? I found this is conducive to a long, happy marriage. But there is not a single reason under the sun why a diabetic should not eat liver. And there's a long list of reasons why a diabetic should eat liver. Liver is... Very low in carbohydrates and actually has a few carbohydrates uh, in the form of glycogen, which is completely fine. Don't worry, ever worry about an animal source of carbohydrates because it's going to be a very low amount. Liver is full of vitamins and minerals and amino acids and fatty acids that your mother in law's body needs. Most diabetics are deficient in several vitamins and minerals because they're eating a highly processed, high carbohydrate diet that the American Diabetes Association told them to eat. So you did exactly the right thing for your mother in law. Your wife is wrong, but do not tell her that uh, every diabetic should eat organ meats, not because they contain anything magic but because they contain essential vitamins and minerals and other things that the body needs on a daily basis. And they're very low in carbohydrates. And when you're when your mother in law eats some liver, that means she's not going to eat something else, which would probably be high carbohydrate, highly processed shit. I hope that makes sense. Hope this answer helps. Thanks, Jack, for having me. Uh, I'll talk to you guys next time.
2: I have to say, this is just one of those things I've never even heard before. I when I got it, I literally forwarded it to Ken and rolled my eyes, and I even I texted him on the side and said, "Dude, what do you where do you see the one I just sent you?" There's there's no reasoning, there's no logic that would go with this. But what I want to kind of point out is what Ken said is true. It's the kind of thing that a person hears, and it is a simple enough thing that has enough plausible authority behind it that somehow it latches onto the brain and it becomes something that just everybody knows, even if not everybody knows. And then it becomes something that becomes irreversible in the person's mind. It becomes so attached to their mental state that they literally cannot process that it's not true. And, and the number one thing that increases the hooks of a lie in the brain is the duration of the lie. There's Actually, there's two things, and they're, they're kind of equal in what they do. One is the stress under which the lie is applied. This is how brainwashing is accomplished, like convincing people you're going to die if you go outside. And if you do go outside, you should wear a mask that doesn't work, right? That's, that's using a lot of stress around a lie and then massive rep- repetition of the lie. But the other is a lie that is accepted as, as reality. And even if it's never repeated, it's recalled, and it's recalled for a very long time, and it's never challenged. And that's what this is in this case. And there's so many things that have been programmed both intentionally and inadvertently into the human mind in modern society that are exactly like this. And and all of us have some. All, one of the things I love about being a podcaster is every once in a while, I'll chunk one out there. And like twenty of you be like, that's not true, Jack. That's stupid. Here, look, and and then you look and you find out, hey, these people are right. Just because I was told this by my history teacher doesn't mean that it was true. There was an, uh, one of those uh, stories way back in there, like two thousand nine. And you know, when you when you find out it's not true, if you're a freaking grown ass adult, you admit it. One that I think of all the time is when you tell people the boiling frog analogy is just a story. It's not true. That if you put a frog in water and slowly turn up the temperature, the frog will try to get out of the water long before it dies. And they don't believe you. I've had people get mad when you tell them that. Do you know what thermoregulation is? No. Well, people that are we refer to as herpetologists, which either they're either professional or they're amateur, like myself, that, uh, that just really have an interest in reptiles and amphibians would tell you what thermoregulate means. And, and all reptiles and amphibians thermoregulate. That's why when you set up an enclosure for a snake or a lizard or a frog or whatever, you create a thermal gradient. In other words, a hot side and a cool side. Somewhere in between there at any given time there's a Goldilocks zone because the, the creature the critter is is endothermic. Right? I'm sorry, ectothermic. And so it needs an out of body source of heat. Right? Like so you are an you are an endothermic critter. You're warm blooded. You you regulate your body temperature from inside. A frog, a snake, any reptile, any amphibian is ectothermic. They they adjust their body temperature from outside of themselves. If it gets cold, they go sit on a warm rock in the sun. If they get too hot, they go in a hole in the ground. You don't think they're going to try to get out of water when the temperature changes? Wouldn't that mean that the snake sitting or the frog sitting on a rock to warm up would just sit there until it baked? Kind of the same thing. Hmm, interesting. And see, some of you right now are going, damn. And it's still hard to let go that that's not a real thing if you've never heard me talk about it before. Be careful with that. Be careful with that. That's that's the lesson in this from Ken today, that there are things that we have latched onto, and the longer, like a leech, they latch into our brain, the more difficult they are, the more you have to burn them to get them out. Next up, how about solar hot water and running a computer, mo- a, a, a cable modem or a, a, a DSL modem, what have you, an Internet modem, sorry, uh, during a planned... Outage like a rolling brownout, rolling blackout situation.
1: Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar and I've got two questions from across the pond today. Uh, so first one, what would be the simplest and most economic way to use solar for hot water production and would it make sense? Details. I live in an old farmhouse in southwest France. It has an electric 200 liter or 53 gallon water heater, which is 230 volt and rated at 2400 watts. Is there a safe, easy, and economic way to integrate solar into the system? What would you do, and can you elaborate on possible options? Best, Jan. Uh, Jan, the easiest and most economic way to is to put a black water hose on your roof and gravity feed it into a bucket, and you walk the bucket to where you need the hot water. That's easy, it's cheap, and it's quick. Um, now, to integrate solar on a more direct basis, you could build a small solar thermal collector with pipe inside of it. That's colored black, and then you create a loop where you would run uh, water through your uh, thermal collector uh, from the bottom of the tank, which is going to be the colder water, and then back to the tank. Uh, so, what you're doing there is you're essentially uh, splitting the job of heating the water between the electrical element and um, the sun. Uh, now, those systems work best when you're using an on demand heater, but it can work with a tank heater. Uh, the big thing is you wanna make sure that water is always moving. Um, the reason for that is is you don't want the water in the uh, solar collector to get up above um, boiling because then you can have a bomb on your roof. The, um, the other option would be to do a, a solar direct to DC tank heater, so that's a panel or panels, uh, to a DC heat element. So you would take a regular water heater, you take the AC element out, put a DC uh, heat element in uh, and, and use that tank when it's hot and then only use the AC system when the DC tank is reheating or potentially run water from the uh, DC tank into the AC tank uh, so that the water in the AC tank has less of a gap between incoming and um, your, your final uh, heat. Uh, so those are kind of the different options that you could utilize there. Uh, so the next option or the next question is, how do we power an Internet router during planned um, rolling blackouts without a generator? Uh, so with the prospect of rolling blackout or load shedding looking to happen in the U.K. and Europe this winter, I'm looking at ways to keep life as close to normal during these short periods. I don't own a generator, but I do have an inverter and vehicles on the drive that I can use to power, uh, provide power for my freezer if issues occur for longer than a few hours. What I would like to do is to keep my family – I'm sorry, what I would like to do – Um, is for my family to be able to use laptops and the internet during a rolling blackout in order to keep things as close to normal as possible. Uh, The laptops obviously have their own power, but the internet router does not. I really uh, don't want to have to purchase a full-size UPS for this one device. Is there a way to run this router with a DC barrel connector off of a USB C power bank with an adapter or is it going to require a more technical solution? What other solutions uh, might there be to power the router? I really don't want to have a car slash inverter running for a single small device. Uh, so James, I'm going to answer your question two ways. I'm going to answer the question you asked and then I'm going to tell you what I would do. Uh, now one thing you're going to need to know is whether or not your internet provider will still be up during a power outage. Many providers have devices on the power poles that provide the internet connectivity, but they don't work if the grid is down in that area. Uh, Most of the internet in the States has been switched over to not require those, but I'm not sure if it's like that where you are. Um, There's no use in having a working router when there's no signal coming into it, right? Uh, there There are routers on the market that sip energy, and they could be powered by a battery bank or sometimes even from the laptop itself. So depending on your... Uh, laptop, you might be able to get enough juice out of the USB-C connector to use the laptop battery. Um, let me see here. So, uh, oh, there's also devices that go are straight on 12 volts. So if it's got a 12-volt DC input that you plug into the wall and there's it's got the big block that converts from AC to DC, uh, you could actually take that and wire it straight to uh, a battery. Uh, there are adapters online that you can get for that. And then you would just take that battery and plug it in to a uh, regular AC battery charger. So the battery charger would keep the battery topped off. Uh, and when you're running that router with the grid up, the electrons would say hello to the battery as they pass right through and into the router. And then when the grid comes off, the stored energy in the battery would keep the router going. Um, now, sometimes you have two devices. That's another thing to look out for. Sometimes you have a modem and a router, which are separate uh, items. I uh, know on our, um, house in Alabama, I have a, um, modem and then I have two routers and two extenders. And so, uh, in the event that I had a, uh, power outage, I would need to figure out what to do there. My solution is I power the, um, router itself and I have a, um, a, uh, USB-C or not USB-C, a Cat5 cable running from the router underneath my house all the way to my back bedroom, uh, where I can directly wire my laptop into, uh, the, the, uh, system if I need to. Now, um, what I would do in this situation, I would buy a UPS. Um, I would have my router and or modem connected to the ups and in the event the power was down i could use the ups for a lot of other things as well it's not required that it's only used for that one thing uh, you've got ups's out there that can run for 24 hours straight without being recharged and you know once you've got your freezer running off the car in an extended outage you could always just plug your in, your ups there and charge that back up as well Um, My UPS has four different plugs. I can run computers, printers, chargers, or even my projector uh, from it in the event the grid goes down. Uh, So without even having a generator running uh, the UPS, I could watch TV with it if I wanted to. Uh, We used that actually when we first went off-grid before we had the solar panels in place. um, If the inverter went off to protect the battery bank, we would have the UPS; it would keep everything on while we ran out there and cranked the generator up. Uh, so that's what I would do in those two situations. Thank you guys for the questions; uh, keep them going into Jack, and I'll keep answering them. Thanks.
2: So, and uh, as Sean did allude to this in there, it is very possible that when your power's out, your internet's going to be out. I have cable modem service, and uh, CATV hard lines use DC power. Uh, to amplify signal down uh, their lines and to, uh, to, so that you get the signal with enough left in it that, that it'll actually work for you. And, uh, but that, that DC power comes from an AC-DC converter, and most of the plant out there is tied directly to somewhere along the way to the grid. So when the grid powers down, it's highly likely that you'll be down, especially in a rolling blackout situation. I have never had the situation where I live now that my power was out and my Internet was still available. It's not happened. Um, Nor that uh, the cable television was available, because, again, you're getting power uh, for your, your hard lines from the grid, usually somewhere. Now, my alternative suggestion here would be, Making sure you have a really badass, although I don't know the European market, a really badass cell phone data plan with the ability to tether to a phone. That's what we do. If and down to the point, like so, we have plenty of backup power. So if we're sitting around and we're in an extended outage and we want to watch something streaming or something like that, you know, I have AT and T for service. We'll tether to my iPhone with my laptop, and I'll I'll have the TV on, and we'll take and. uh Uh, uh, screen mirror from my laptop uh, onto the TV set. And, And we'll watch movies and stuff off streaming services with no trouble. Because your cellular network probably will still have power. Now, again, I don't know European systems. But while cellular carriers are somewhat dependent on the grid from an overall basis for power, they are not in a direct relationship generally they're running their own power systems and they have battery backup power that's, that, that works for, works quite well. So we were without power during the great freeze that everybody talks about down here for about 30 hours and in that 30 hour period we were never without cellular signal and the cellular tower that we hit you can literally see it from my house it's off to my uh, southwest a bit. So that would be my other thing to look at. Maybe you don't need to worry so much about powering the router. Maybe you need to worry about having a completely different uh, system of redundancy. So when we would run, we would like, when I used to do data cabling work and things like that, and we'd run on real redundancy, we didn't just run two cables. We would run two cables in two different routes so that if something happened to one, like let's say we're talking about underground cabling, somebody dug one up with a backhoe, well, it wouldn't if you put two of them in the same trench, you'll probably get them both when you dig it up with a backhoe. You have backhoe fade, right? So just maybe thinking that way. And, again, I don't know if that works in your environment, but it may work for people here in the States to think that way as well. And I've, I've also, I, I've, I've talked to people, like, yeah, we don't even have Internet. And I'm like, well, what? I'm on the phone with them on their cell phone. Well, what about your phone? I'm like, yeah, you know, but it kind of sucks just being on your phone. Like, no, no, like, do you, do you get tether your phone to your computer? And it's not even they didn't know it. They just forgot. They forgot that they knew. They're like, damn it. Like, yeah, i, I got to go, man. I'm going to, you know, something like that. So just think about that as an alternative. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take one on another system of redundancy, freezer alarms.
6: Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Hollow Roast Coffee with an update to a question I had in March of 2022. The question was, what do you recommend for a freezer alarm? And I think it's because people know that I butcher and keep whole animals. It was right after I butchered four pigs that I got this question. And at the time, I was using an AccuRite sensor that used Bluetooth to, with the probes in the freezer to let a centralized alarm in my house yell at me if the freezers were getting warm. And it worked. In the expert segment, I said this is not the, probably not the best option, but this is an option and this is why you should have a freezer alarm. Well, let's review the why first. Go to your freezer right now in your kitchen, open it up and look in there and mentally calculate how much money you have in that freezer. It's probably about a hundred bucks. Might be more, depends on how fancy you are, but it's probably about a hundred bucks. Close the freezer. Now think about that at scale in an upright freezer or a chest freezer that you keep all of the meat in. Just multiply that. Hundreds of dollars, maybe maybe more than a $1,000 in one freezer. So having an insurance policy that costs you a little bit of money in the freezer is worth it. Or you need to be checking your freezer every single day. I don't know about you, I do not check my freezers every single day. So that's why you want it. It will... For a, you know, 50, 35 to $55 price tag, you have an insurance policy in your freezer that keeps you from losing all that money. And it saves you something else, too. Have you ever heard what it smells like when a meat-filled chest freezer goes bad? I have smelled the smell. The smell never really comes out. Some people are magic and get it. The smell never really comes out. So then you basically ruined your freezer too. How much does it cost to replace that freezer? Anyway, this summer I was on a trip with a friend and he was driving and his Apple watch went off and he picked up the phone. He's like, I got to make a call. Picked up the phone. Well, he didn't really pick it up. He told the phone to call his restaurant and said, hey, go check the walk-in freezer I think the door is cracked and it was and he hung up the phone. I was like, dude, what are you using for that? Because that is the sensor I have dreamed of. And he told me about it and he said, I have a sensor that works really well and it alerts my phone via text message. It can send an email or it gives me just an in-app alert based on the parameters I set up, which means I can use the same sensor in my walk-in fridge that I can use in my walk-in freezer. It's like, well, that's cool. Send me a link. And he did. And it was the Yolink Smart Outdoor Temperature and Humidity Sensor. I ordered them right away. And it took me about half an hour to set up. It would have taken me 15 minutes. But the part I didn't get was that I had to have geolocation on on my phone when I set up the probes in the freezers with the Wi-Fi access. So here's how this thing works, guys. You have a speaker hub, kind of like if you have Alexa, you have Alexa hub, right? Well, this is Yolink. You have that hub and you have the probes. You take them out of the box. You set up the hub first and then you add the probes and then you set the lowest temperature. Like if it goes below this low temperature, let me know. I set it to negative 40. That ain't ever happening in my freezers because I don't need to know if they're super cold. And then you set the high temperature. I set mine at 20 degrees so that if it, because my freezers are set to zero degrees. If they get to 20, something's wrong. And if they get to 20, I still have time to deal with it before my meat has gotten too warm. So I set them up for that and put them out in a space that is on the other side of two cinder block walls and in freezers which are well insulated. The hub has no problem using Bluetooth to talk to those things in the freezers. None at all. It has a quarter mile range in fact, which is pretty darn badass. The quarter mile range gets smaller when you go through cinder block walls, just spoiler alert there. But what I've had as problems in the past with other freezer alarms is my cinder block walls, me needing the alarm on one side and the probe on the other and them losing losing connectivity with each other from time to time, which then makes them completely useless pieces of junk. This thing has stayed connected the entire time I've had them set up Since I installed them with one exception, and that was when my internet went down. So when the power goes out or the internet goes down, these are not going to be alerting you because the internet is required to alert you and the power is required for the hub to be turned on. If you have a backup power battery or something on your internet and on the speaker hub and your internet stays up when the power goes out, then you actually are fine if the power goes out. But here's the deal, guys. I know when the power goes out, and that's not what I'm asking a a temperature probe to do. So let's talk about that. Pretty much all temperature probes will not keep working when the power goes out if you do not have a battery backup, unless they're just the audible ones that are, you know, hooked up and make a noise in your house. If you're not home when that happens, that is what it is. Asking a freezer probe... To let you know when the power goes out is an unrealistic expectation for the purpose of that device, in my opinion. I have no idea how you know when the power goes out other times unless you have something specifically set up just to let you know when there are power outages when you're not home. That's not what my freezer probe is for. So I will say the good points of this Yolink Smart Outdoor Temperature Humidity and Humidity Sensor is that you can set the ranges. It's super easy to set up. The battery life is very long for the probes inside your freezer, and it talks to both Amazon Alexa if you use that or if this, then that, and you can make it do additional things. So all of those things make me love it, particularly the ease of setup, because you do not have to be a technical person to set this up. You have to be able to use a smartphone, yes. So use a smartphone, install an app, and set settings. As long as you can do those three things, you can set this up. The negative points that I can think of are that it does not not let you know about freezer problems if your Wi-Fi is out or if your internet goes out or if your electricity goes out. So you need to have a plan for that. You should have already had a plan for that to begin with. And for me, those aren't negative points. The price point on this is 55 bucks for one probe and one hub. I have given that link to Jack. Also, if you want additional probes or different additional sensors, it's $35 per sensor, which isn't that much when you think about it. So definitely think to yourself right now, self, does my freezer have an alarm in it yet? And if the answer to that is no, and you have $55, I would get one of these right away and get them set up because there is nothing worse than putting blood, sweat, and tears into making money to buy stuff for your freezer or blood, sweat, and tears into growing stuff and processing stuff to put in your freezer only to lose it to a terrible day because your freezer went out and you didn't notice it for a week and now what you have is a lot of rotten flesh. You can avoid that problem with a freezer alarm of any kind and I definitely like this one for its usability. I hope this helps somebody avoid losing their freezer, I know for my podcast listeners, one person already emailed me that they did not lose stuff in their freezer because when they heard me talk about this on the podcast, they got it, installed it, and very shortly thereafter, their freezer broke. So that's kind of awesome to hear things like that. I hope this helps you too. If you want to learn more about what I'm up to, you can do that at my podcast, livingfreeintennessee.com is the website for it, or Living Free Free in Tennessee on any podcatcher and Christmas is coming, guys. I know Halloween is this weekend, but Christmas is coming. We just launched our holiday offerings for Hollow Roast. They make great Christmas presents. I can gift wrap stuff for you. I handwrite the cards if you want to have a custom card in there. And then we have a brand new mug this year that can be paired with coffee. So lots of fun stuff over at Hollowroast.com. Plus, Jack's Bourbon Cooled is back. I have 100 pounds of that. And when it's gone, it is gone. That's all over at com. Make it a great week.
2: Let me say the financial loss of a freezer is bad. The misery of dealing with it uh, from a standpoint of disgusting rotted meat, if it has been long enough since, you know, before you catch it, is it will turn your stomach in ways you cannot imagine. Um, I lost a freezer once while we were on vacation, and it was before we had all these fancy gadgets and all. And I literally duct taped it closed and paid to have a dump, you know, a dump, a, dump, uh, a trash company just haul the whole thing away. I, I, I literally couldn't deal with it, and that was a pretty small freezer. The other thing is, and a big reason to have these now is that they don't make them like they used to. You know, your dad used to say that, your granddad used to say that. Et it's really true now and especially of freezers. And so freezers, you used to buy a chest freezer or a stand-up freezer and throw it out in a garage, and it would be there 40 years and still work. And it's in the last 15 years, they've really started to to get cheap on certain uh, coatings and protection and stuff like that And if you do buy one And now that they're no longer impossible to find uh, New It's worth the extra money to buy the one that is designed To be like out in a garage or something Because the new ones they, they all used to be and, and they're not anymore And most of them you get They're not designed for that And they have a, a high uh, number of failures Within the first year or two even Brand new ones I've got one that I got for free off next door Lady said her kids done grown and gone. Uh, She's had it so long ago that there's a Cowboy schedule sticker on it from like the early '90s, and and it just keeps chugging along, no problems whatsoever. I've got a little one that I bought God 25 years ago, no problems. It's been moved around, banged around, whatever. Uh, When I expect any of them to go, it's the newest ones that I expect most likely to go. So this is really worth doing for the money and a peace of mind, and to not feel like you are in a horror movie from the smell. Uh, Next up, well, let's talk about teaching your kids when you're homeschooling, and something many homeschool parents have a hard time understanding is that there may come times when you need to use a little bit of teamwork because you may not be best suited to teach your child a specific thing or two. Amy, take it away.
7: Hi, TSP. This is Amy Dingman with the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website. And today I want to talk about something I sometimes will hear homeschool families say. Some homeschool families will start out their journey as homeschoolers, believing they can teach their kids everything that their kids will need to know. We can kind of get caught up in that. You know, I I taught my kids to walk and talk, and I don't need a degree to teach my kids to add and read or write or what insects are in the yard or the names of the constellations or whatever it is you want to teach your kids. You know, I have the power of YouTube and Google, hear me roar. But I think we need to be honest about the importance of community, and I think we also need to be honest that us being able to teach our kids everything they want to know, that doesn't last forever. You can teach your kids a ton of stuff, but none of us are an island. None of us know everything, even with the power of YouTube and Google. We are not always the best teacher for our kids. We need other people, especially when our kids get older. Now, if you follow me or my page or listen to my podcast, you know that both of my adult children are musicians, and so we always had instruments in the house for them to mess around on. I'm a musician. My husband also plays the guitar, and so we taught our kids what we knew, but at some point... It was very clear that our kids were zooming past everything that we already knew about music. And I thought, well, that's, that's nice. It's, it's great that they're learning. It's great that they're, they're so good at this. And at some point, it became clear to me that this was more than just a hobby. And they started talking college, and they started talking music careers. And it continued on even further to the point that I no longer understood the musical terminology they were using and they didn't have anyone but each other to talk about it with. And then my oldest started talking about wanting to learn more about music theory and composition because it might be what he wants to do with his life. And my youngest started talking about studying neoclassical electric guitar like Ingve Malmstein. and I gave them both blank stares because none of those things were on my checklist of things that I knew or understood. So that's when I realized, you know what, we got to branch out. We need to find them other people to learn with. We need to find them other people to learn from. So I called in reinforcements. We found a local music school for them to go to to take some lessons, and they found their happy place. They learned so much. It was a great decision for us to be able to ask other people for help with that. You may get to that point in your homeschooling journey. In fact, you will get to that point in your homeschooling journey. Do not get so stuck on... I can teach my kids everything and we're going to pull ourselves into our house because the world is bad and the world is horrible. Don't do that because that is not helping your kids. You are not always the best teacher for your kids for everything. Here's a couple reasons why. Number one, how many of you went forward with a future that your parents would have had enough knowledge to teach you about? The world is really big friends and there are people out there who know a lot more about different stuff than you do. Number two. Sometimes other people kind of speak your kid's language. Sometimes other people have the same knowledge or skill set as you, but they can explain it in a different way than you can. And that might be the way that clicks with your kid. Number three, some kids just can't learn certain things from their parents. And some parents just can't teach their kids certain things because of personality clashes, because of misunderstood explanations. And then there's all these emotions that wouldn't come into play if somebody less involved was teaching them the thing. Kids need you, but they also need other people. Kids need objective feedback, especially if it's something that's art-based Your kid wants to know they actually did a good job on that painting or that song or that dance, and you're not just saying it because you're the mom or the dad. The other thing is that kids often perform differently when it's not for mom or dad. Think of it this way. For some people, It's really easy to stand up in front of a room of complete strangers and deliver a speech or sing a song or give some presentation. But if you put them in a room with their five closest friends or relatives, suddenly they can't remember what they were going to say. Their mouth goes totally dry. They're stuttering. They're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Kids often will provide a different quality of work for someone who's not mom. Several years ago when my youngest was taking a firearm safety course, I was nervous because he'd never taken a class in a classroom setting, and I was like, this is not going to go well. But my super fidgety, distracted child, who at the time would buck me if he had to sit and write for more than 0.14 seconds, he finished his entire firearm safety workbook without me asking him even once. And he did really well in the class. He sat, he listened. It was awesome. When your kids are only learning from you, they're only expressing one part of who they are. And sometimes... They need another part of themselves to shine. And so bringing other people in to teach your kids is perfect for that. Another reason to bring other people in is that other people have connections to the communities your kids need to be a part of in order to expand and soar in their ability. If your child is hardcore into oil painting, get them with the people who do that. If your son rocks at the guitar, help him find the community that will help develop that talent. If your daughter has an eye for graphic design, find her the people who can move her forward with those skills. Let other people teach your kid and let your kid connect with other people because you know what? Your kid can be pretty inspiring to that other person too. All of this to say, homeschooling should make your world bigger. Sometimes as homeschoolers, we want to cocoon our kids. Sometimes that's out of fear Sometimes it's because we think the world is a big, bad, horrible place. Sometimes it's because we have this weird, super self-sufficient, my kids don't need anyone else sort of thing. Don't do this, you guys. Seriously, do not do this. Do not hold your kids back because of your fear or your lack of knowledge on a topic or about a skill or an interest your kid has. Also, Don't hold your kids back because of your desire to show the world how much you think you can do. Like, I'm so awesome. I can teach my kids this because I think I know what I'm doing. And you don't accept other people know more than you or maybe a better teacher about that. So the choice is yours. When you reach something your kids want to learn more about and you don't have the answers, you basically have two options. A, they can get a subpar education from you. Or B, they can get an amazing education from someone else. And this is not a slam on you. The fact that you lack knowledge and have to reach out for help does not mean you failed your kids. Realizing that you are not always the best teacher for your kids doesn't mean you have failed at giving them this all-encompassing education self-sufficiently. It means you paid attention to what your kid was looking for and you went on a hunt, either alone or together, to figure out how to make it happen for them apart from you you sought out the person who could best provide that for your kid. And the best thing about all that is that you get to see your kid light up after hearing an explanation from someone else that you could not have given them. And I think that's the best thing that you can do as a homeschooling parent. If you've got more questions about homeschooling or parenting or family life on the homestead, you can send them to Jack or you can email me at amy at afarmishkindoflife.com. You can check out my website, afarmishkindoflife.com. Thank you, Jack, for letting me talk to your awesome listeners. It's always fun. Looking forward to more questions. I'll talk to you again soon.
2: So, yeah, a lot in that, and I definitely see it in our grandkids. And I'll I'll say there's, there's probably two big places for it. One, Amy talked about, and that is the kid wants to learn a thing you're just not good at. You know, I, people think I'm a great teacher. I'm a great teacher under the right circumstances. I need, I need three circumstances to be a great teacher. One, I need to know the material really well. Number two, I have to be interested in the material and want to talk about it. Number three, the student has to want to learn from me. I, I am a terrible teacher. If, if any one of those is missing, I can do, I know it well and the student wants to learn and, and not really be hugely passionate for it. I can do it for a time. But I, I cannot overcome the student that doesn't want to learn. I can't. I don't have that ability. Some teachers are really great at that. They make the student want to learn. I need the person that's coming to me going, tell me, teach me, help me. And i got to know the material. I can't fake it. I think that's true of anybody. So it becomes real obvious then like my, my grandson is, is a pretty good pitcher and a pretty good hitter in baseball, and I'm not. And so to kind of go to another level, we were having private lessons with with a guy who used to play double-A ball because that would be a guy that knows more, and he does really well for him. But the place where I think where parents maybe are less likely to seek help is kid just doesn't want to do it for you, and Amy's kind of talked about that too. We're dealing with that with my grand, granddaughter right now. She's getting more and more of having to learn to read and having to use language skills and stuff like that, you know. Sometimes it's just harder than she wants it to be, and she just do not want to do it. But, but I guarantee you, if she was sitting there with a third party, she wouldn't pull a lot of the stuff that she pulls. We might even make that happen, because I want to make my, 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 my life for my wife easier. And, and sometimes you're, what you're under is the prophet hath no honor in his own country syndrome. Well, since I know I can throw a fit because I don't feel like doing it right now because Grandma's here or Mom's here or what have you, and and even if I'm going to get in trouble, I already know what that – so that's the other thing. Well, if you're just strict enough. Yeah, but if they already know what that means, and they've already made a determination, I'd rather have that than do what I don't feel like doing right now. So there's a a place in both areas. And then the last one is sometimes it's a thing that is kind of technically hard. You can do it and you don't understand it, but you need someone that can come in with a different teaching method for just a little bit. You know, you may be a tutor to do three or four sessions. Because sometimes when people use a different angle, it's not that they're not trying to learn from you and be an obstinate. It. It's that the way you explain it's not working for them. Uh, Nicole has said of me, she said, Jack, you are a person with ten analogies for everything. And that is one of the ways I rely on teaching. If I can give you an analogy that makes it familiar to you, it makes it easier for you to understand. It doesn't mean it works well for everybody. So there may be people that are much more of like an engineering mindset. Don't give me an analogy. Tell me exactly how this thing works, this sprog into this socket and this cog into this sprocket and what have you, right? You know, That's what they want to know. Give me the math. I'm not good at teaching that way. I'm good at making you understand things at the macro level versus the micro level because it's where it interests me. So in, in all of those ways, there's times kind of tag in a teammate. And if you have to spend a little bit of money to do it, do it. Kids are worth it. Anyway, uh, and so is your sanity. Let's move on from there, and let's hear from um, uh, Chef Keith Snow, who we haven't heard from for a while. By the way, the graphic in today's episode, totally worth looking up, pays homage to Chef Keith. And unless you saw it when I used it like five years ago one time, it'll probably make you laugh. And even if you did, you'd be like, oh, I remember that, and it'll make you laugh, and I ain't going to tell you what it is. It has nothing to do with his answer to that. Chef Keith went on the proper human diet as prescribed by Ken Berry, i.e. keto Keto-Carnivore. Well, what were the results? Let Keith tell you.
8: Hey, Chef Keith Snow, I wanted to give a personal testimonial um, to what Dr. Ken Berry calls the proper human diet. A little background before I get into it. Um, at one point, um, my family went 100% vegan, and this was an attempt to help our son, who has a hat, he's grown out of it, um, childhood um, epilepsy, which was pretty bad. So we all went vegan, and we were vegan for five months, and as the months progressed, both my wife and I did not feel good. She lost a ton of weight. I mean, she looked frightening, and I was just in misery with joint pain, and tired and you know digestion problem both of us had stupendous gas i mean it was ridiculous the amount of gas we had we would have never dated each other if we were vegan when we met that's the joke we had so we went and we both had blood work done we drew blood and we looked at a pretty it wasn't just the cbc it was it was more than that and um it was not a pretty picture all the the key markers were were way out of whack triglycerides whatever blood sugar um there was, my cholesterol was great. The doctor, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. It was 130, my cholesterol. So he was excited. Um, but I was miserable. So when we got that blood work back, literally we went from being strict vegans. And this was not junk food vegan. This was healthy vegan. Um, all, you know, vegetables, grains, all the things that you see on the food pyramid. We went from that to keto overnight and keto definitely helped. We waited 60 days of strict keto dieting and we looked at our blood again. We had, you know, expensive blood work drawn and all the key markers were back in line and we both felt, you know, much, much better. Um, but I still. While I felt better than when I was vegan, I still had issues. Now, years and years ago, I was diagnosed with something called psoriatic arthritis. I know Dr. Berry has probably seen it a zillion times. Joint pain, swelling, um, a lot of stiffness coupled with patches of nasty, flaky, sometimes even bloody skin. Now, I've had um, several of these sort of lesions on my body. One of them is on my left elbow, and then I had a patch of it on my left thigh, and then Whenever I would eat gluten or a lot of seed oils, stuff like that, even the healthy seed oils, not soybeans, something like safflower or sunflower, which you know is supposed to be healthy, I would have um, flaking skin on my nose, sometimes on my chin, um, just bad stuff, so even with keto, I did feel better, but I was still eating a ton of seeds and nuts and a crap ton of kale and almond flour and almonds. I mean, the amount of nuts that I ate and I just did never, never felt great. I had heart palpitations. So what I did was, uh, started to listen to people like Dr. Barry, um, and others out there that promote an animal based or, you know, carnivore diet. A lot of people, oh, carnivore, that's it's very extreme. Um, but the way Dr. Berry put it with uh, beef, butter, bacon and eggs, you know, that sounds a lot more um, reasonable, so to speak. So I, I started to get more and more strict and I would have the beef, butter, bacon and eggs. I'd have some uh, raw and fermented dairy. I make creme fraiche. I make my own yogurt, you know, some of that on a regular basis and very, very, very little vegetables, occasionally a couple pieces of lettuce or cabbage and occasionally some onions and garlic. I am Italian after all. Um, so those were hard to give up 100%. But the more I focus on an animal-based diet, lots and lots of eggs, tons of butter, beef tallow, all kinds of beef, but just a lot of grass-fed and finished ground beef, um, the better I feel. Now, the joint pain, 100% gone. The skin issue on the leg, 100% gone. And the thing on my elbow, 95% gone. Now, if I slip up and cheat, like I took the kids, you know, two and a half, three weeks ago to Chick-fil-A, took a couple of bites of a, um, I didn't eat the bread, but the chicken sandwich, and, you know, 48 hours later, my face was red and itchy, and I didn't feel great. When I cut all that stuff out, all the nuts, all the seeds, all the seed oil, and focus on um, the, the meat, the fermented dairy, that sort of stuff, I feel a 100% better, and it makes me really angry that I took the amount of drugs that I did take, um, that doctors prescribed to me. I mean, they told me that I said, what about diet? Uh, Diet doesn't matter. I thought, well, I didn't, I didn't believe it, but I was ignorant and I took all their medicine and it just made me worse. So I wanted to give this testimonial that way. Any of you out there that may be having some challenges or just reservations about eating a lot more animal foods, um, That, that you could give it a try because it's really helped me. I mean, my digestion is so much better. It, I mean, it's, it's, you never feel any digestion. I mean, I never feel any kind of, um, cramping. There's zero gas. Um, it's just, it happens in the background and you don't know it where when you're on some of these other diets, um, it can be very loud and smelly, if you know what I mean. Um, the other day we took the kids to the mountains. I have a homemade dehydrated backpacking meals that I put together. And we brought one of those up and we all, two of them actually, we all had some of it. I probably had a half a cup of it. It had beef and rice and um, black beans and corn and a bunch of spices, you know, the chili peppers, cumins. It was like a Santa Fe beef. And within an hour and a half, it was as if I was trying to digest a porcupine. My insides were just miserable and then the gas started and it was terrible and ridiculous and it just told me that you know those type of foods are just not um what i should be eating now i wanted to again leave this for you guys and gals out there encourage you to give it a try i wanted to thank dr barry for all the um video content and advice that he's given over the years because it's uh i feel helped a lot of people so that's all i have i hope everybody has a great weekend and, uh, Jack, thanks for what you do. Take care, everyone.
2: About the only thing I'll, I'll add on to there is that uh, it's interesting to me that a guy can be that unhealthy and his doctor's happy because his cholesterol's where a piece of paper says it's supposed to be. It, it, it's absolutely insane. And it shows you that there is a disconnect between academia and reality in the world of medicine. It really is. I do want to quick uh, give you guys a a little bit of feedback from someone else who's tried going full-on keto carnivore. His name's Christopher, and this is from a couple months ago. I said in one of the live streams, hey, if you doubt it, I'd challenge any one of you to do it and then see what happens. And this guy emailed me and said he's going to do it, asked me some advice. And I said, just effing do it, basically. Um, But he was not in bad shape. This wasn't a guy trying to lose 100 pounds or nothing. I've gotten three emails that I've saved here to read from him, though. But here you go. Jack, this morning I hit a mini landmark of being down 10 pounds. It's day 15, by the way, of doing this. 10 effing pounds. I haven't seen this number on a scale in years. 11 pounds till goal is number 11 pounds till goal, goal number one. I went a bit off keto this weekend for six hours while doing a brutal 40 mile mountain bike race after a few beers, uh, but got right back on the following day. You can, in fact, do endurance and fitness in keto. I learned you just need to plan your calories ahead of the pending energy crash. Chopped meat sticks, Justin's almond butter packets were my savior energy source. Many other odd uh, but fun things happening during keto excursion. Time to continue reclaiming my physical life. USDA, sit on a stick in your food pyramid. In the words of Rage Against the Machine, F you, I won't do what you tell me to. Thanks again for letting me send you the updates, Chris from Minnesota. Uh, day 47. Uh, and down 17 pounds. I think I need more exercise. I'm finding I have more energy at night now, too. My only issue is I've started to stress eat a little bit during uh, because of some family health issues. Thank God for pork rinds and pre-cooked bacon. Thanks again for the nudge, Jack. And then I just got this one a couple days ago. You're a damn jerk. My freaking clothes don't fit anymore. Anxiety was reduced. Caffeine needs down. Craving junk food manageable. You suck, Ha. Keto problems. Day 54, somewhere between 202 and 204 for weight. So 12 to 14 pounds away from my finishing goal. I'll hit it even if it's not in the 90-day challenge window. My wife asked if I'll continue even after the 90 days, and now I'll say yes. I see no reason not to. So, if you've been on the fence about this, just do it. Just do it like Chris. Be like Chris. And go keto. Anyway, I wanted to talk to you just brief on my segment today about the poverty mindset. I was trying to think of, you know what what do I basically leave you guys with. This is the last time that I'll be talking to you on the podcast anyway. We will be live streaming all the presentations, including mine and some other stuff from the workshop, at least all the stuff that's in the shop. So the first two days, uh, we won't be streaming until uh, mid-afternoon because the morning sessions are outdoors. Anyway, um, so I won't be talking to you directly except with the rewinds for the next week. And so I popped into the TSP Telegram group, which you should totally join if you haven't yet, and just looked at what people were talking about. And it was nothing really directly what we're talking about today with poverty consciousness. But they were talking about uh, heating and heating with wood and some of the stuff with uh, rocket mass heaters that Paul had talked about uh, in a show last week. And the one guy said of his mother, she'll never spend a dime in advance to save money on her electric bill. She just won't, like, shouldn't have to do that, right? So it doesn't matter what it is, she wouldn't do it. But she's very happy that her Social Security's going up by 100 bucks. And he said something like, gee, talk about poverty consciousness. And a person responded with, you know, so many people live in poverty by choice uh, because it's not about money, it's about mindset. And I thought, well, what a great topic to leave you guys with. So I have to tell you, that I dealt with poverty consciousness most of my young adult life without knowing I did it. I had no idea. I feel very grateful that I left the little town that I'm from, known as as Minersville, Pennsylvania, and uh, got out of there because I don't know if I would have ever got out of it had I not left. And it was going back when I took a job working for a company called Microtest, Uh, in in the early 2000s that put me in touch with the fact that I had broken free from something I I hadn't yet figured out that I had, this poverty consciousness. And what happened was um, I was looking for a house near the Allentown, Pennsylvania area, uh, not really where I grew up. That was not the place I wanted to live. And, uh, but while I was looking for a house, my wife was down here getting stuff ready to sell the house that we had down here at the time. And so I'm up there looking at houses and working and and traveling in my territory. And when I'm in Pennsylvania, I'm staying with my dad. And so I, I got up early one morning and I went out for a walk and did some fishing at a place where I, you know, where I grew up basically screwed off and didn't work even though i was supposed to be working because i just didn't have any appointments and thought hey this is part of being a, a traveling salesman when you're off you're off right so i i go out to fish for a little bit and so it's about 10 o'clock in the morning i'm like i better actually go do some, answer, answer some emails set some appointments up stuff like that and do some freaking work so i'm on my way back and not keto yet so i see the donuts the Dunkin' donuts shop. And right on the corner of the, the highway, which is really just a, a, a big road that goes between the two towns, Minersville so and everybody goes to this place. So I, I walk in there and get a coffee and a donut, and I sit down by myself in a booth. An interesting thing happens when you sit by yourself in a restaurant or at like a place like that. Since you're not talking to anybody, and this is before everybody was always walking around with beat headphones in their ears and stuff like that. There's no such thing as podcast yet, even and you hear the conversations around you a lot more than if you're there focused on somebody else or doing some work or something. I'm just sitting there kind of zoning out, and I realize that I'm hearing a word constantly from everywhere around me, cheap, cheap and cheaper. Cheap, oh, that's so cheap there. Or I'm hearing, oh, they're really proud of their prices over there. No, you should go there. It's cheaper, right? And I, mean, and I start looking around and realize I haven't ever heard the word cheap that I can remember anyway, this many times in my life. And I look around and I'm thinking, well, it's probably a bunch of old folks, and I, cause I really hadn't paid attention. And there's young folks, there's old folks, this was all different demographics, all talking about almost every one of them exclusively talking about where things were cheaper. And I realized, oh, my God, this is, this is, this is probably who I used to be, that I used to make all these decisions based on buying the least expensive thing in the now. And justifying it with, but I only have so much money. The problem with justifying your decisions to make purchases, but I only have so much money, unless you're in a cold hard reality where it's absolutely the case, right? Like, I need something and this is all I can afford and this gets me by another week, then okay, I get you. But in general, we make decisions like that. All these people are sitting there drinking, you know, back at the time, probably about a dollar fifty cup of coffee and who knows how many dollars in donuts. And they're trying to save money on every little thing in their life. You kind of see where the conflict We're not quite Starbucks yet, but you see where the conflict is, right? And I realized that somewhere along the way in this, as I developed in, the, in, in, in my, my profession and in the world of business and in doing uh, sales jobs that were primarily based on financial models, I had shifted from this. And I'd started analyzing everything in my life over its total cost in in opposition to its value across time rather than its immediate cost and just now. So the words I would use for it now, having become a Bitcoiner, I had changed my time preference. The cheap person is concerned about the time preference of the next day, the minute that I'm spending the dollars on the item. The person with the longer your time preference, the more you think of investment. And when I talk about this, I'll use things like the analogy of buying a cheap versus a good garden hose. And a good garden hose costs twice as much, but across 10 years and not throwing away five garden hoses in 10 years, it costs less. And I've literally had people go, "That you worry about that? Like, you're going to get a spreadsheet out for something like that? Well, probably not. Anything a little bit more expensive, probably I'm going to do a spreadsheet on it. If I can't do the math in my head, yeah, I'm going to run a spreadsheet analysis. And if it well, that's uh, well, that's why I'm here and you're there. I remember one time my wife was watching a talk show. I don't remember who, but it was back in the heyday of talk shows, back about the same time, late '90s, right, early early 2000s. And there's a guy that had brought in all these millionaires in, and then they're talking to the audience about how they're and these were blue collar, everyday millionaires, millionaire next door type people. And the one guy said that you know he ate lunch several times a week at Costco because you could eat lunch for a dollar fifty. Now I don't recommend the nutrition there, but it was you know the, you could get the 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 hot dog or the sausage and it was a big old hanging thing and a drink and for a buck fifty and some other stuff that you could get there. And he had a membership anyway, and he, he kind of spun it into, and, and I shop there because we save money, and this lady kind of snooty looking lady, you know puts her hand up and then the lady goes out and says, and he, she says to him, "I don't know how you can sit there and expect that I would eat my lunch at Costco multiple times a week." And he just said, "Well, that's why I'm here and you're there." And there is a point to be made with that. Now, is that the way I want to get there? Not necessarily. But the way I try to get there is making these little smart decisions that are that are putting a dollar into my long-term wealth here, $2 here, $5 there, $50 there. And then you spread that across your adult lifetime. You start thinking this way. When you're 20, if you're lucky, 30, if, you, if, if you're ahead of most people, and you go, you're go, you going to work till let's say, you're 60, 65, you've got 30, 40 years of these little compounding effects on your total net wealth and the quality of the things that you're investing in that you own long term. This is, this is a, 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 a wealth consciousness. Because the reality is those who think they're the, the poorest in this country that actually have an income. I'm a, I understand there's people living in a box on the street. Okay, and I'm not going to get into why they're there, but I, I get that kind of poverty. Or there's people that are in abject poverty in some of the, the worst parts uh, of some of the cities in this country, and their life is so screwed up they can't even conceive of it being different. I, I, I'm not talking about that. But a lot of people that think they're poor are people that make a lot of money every year. And maybe it's not a high salary in today's world, but $40,000, $60,000 is a lot of money all in. And if they're in a two two income household with that kind of income, you know you're looking at somewhere between eighty and one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, and you do that decade after decade after decade and end up with nothing. There was an opportunity in there to build wealth. It was just squandered. And it's generally squandered by shooting yourself in the foot, having a short time preference, but above all other things, a poverty consciousness. That basically says it is my destiny to be poor unless something my shit comes in and I have more money. If I win the lot those are people if you sit around dreaming about winning the lottery on a regular basis. I think all of us today, Well, what if I won the lottery? What would I do? My my wife loves that show Lottery Dream Home and watching those people bitch about the houses they get shown. And it'll make you say, you know, if I want that kind of money, I'll go out and buy a ranch or whatever. But you don't sit around dreaming about it. That's not your that's not your plan until you realize I'm going to die before it happens, right? But if you sit around, the people that sit around and dream about that, the people that invest their money in scratcher tickets, I'm not talking about one wild hair ass, I'll buy one today. You know, I'm talking about people that routinely spend money on that. Those are people with poverty consciousness. And that's not the only indicator, but that's definitely an indicator to me. And what ends up happening is that person actually over time convinces themselves that this is their destiny unless somebody just gives them something i'm just never going to be anything but this and so they manifest in their actions what they think in their heads and they 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 retire dead broke until they're actually dead right they have just enough to get and they end up having retirements They're looking an awful lot like the entire time they were working. They just don't have anything to do that they have to go do every day. And then you'll see another person that earned less money their whole life that has a very rewarding, fulfilling retirement because they've invested their whole life not just into their retirement accounts but into their lives, and they retire with a paid-for home and an easily serviceable amount of property taxes. And they have a paid-for vehicle or two. And and all the stuff that they own is well-maintained and taken care of and long-lasting and enduring. It's your choice. And I know that sounds like a really hard pill to swallow, but I'm going to tell you that in every instance where I've known a person that wasn't born into a family that taught them to think this way, that had to learn it for themselves. And most people do have to learn it for themselves. They didn't get money and then changed their thinking. They changed their thinking and then they got money. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. I enjoyed uh talking to you guys again. I will not be back with you again with new content other than the intro segments for the, the the Rewinds until Tuesday next week. So all next week and then the following week I'll be back on Tuesday. Six Rewinds coming your way. Good stuff, good blasts from the past. Uh, remember, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always support us by doing what? Your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's t s p a z com or join the Member Support Brigade. Get those great discounts that we offer. Get all your money back and then some and support the show. Or listen to us on a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain FM and exchange value for value. What do you think a show like this is worth? A buck? Two? Three? 50 cents, a quarter, whatever you think it's worth, you can share that value for value across the Lightning Network using a podcasting 2.0 app like fountain.fm. With that, take care guys. I will, uh, I'll catch you around on the other
0: side. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out?